We're live. That's good. Good morning, everyone on Facebook and soon to be uh, everyone else online catching this as a podcast later. I'm Melinda McClymans. Uh, I'm the assistant director of the Middle East Study Center at Ohio State University. Um, oh, which reminds me, I should put that up. OSU branding, right? Oh, I don't have it anymore. Oh, well, I'm still learning this. I'm still learning all the technology. Uh, hopefully soon we'll also be hosting this on YouTube live. Um, but it's, it's, you know, it's a work in progress. So today we're going to focus on Afghanistan. And I have brought a very special guest. Uh, he's the director of the Middle East Study Center at Ohio State University, Dr. Alam Payand. And he uh, teaches about the Middle East and, um, you know, obviously here at Ohio State University, but he's also asked to go to military bases um, all over the country and regularly at Wright-Patterson, uh, where Central Command does a lot of training um, just to, you know, um, spread his knowledge and raise awareness about a lot of the cultural factors of the Middle East um, and Central Asia. Um, so really very broad geographic spread that he covers, um, you know, when he's asked to, to, to speak. Um, and we work together. He's my boss. He's the director of the center. And we do outreach together, too. We, in fact, we've even gone to elementary schools to teach about the Middle East together, um, which is lovely. So um, uh, I'm going to let him um, share anything else he wants to about, you know, his background. And he is from Afghanistan. So, you know, um, he also has that personal perspective um, uh, and has, you know, he's an American citizen and, you know, totally American, but he's gone back to Afghanistan many, many times since he left originally. So very glad to introduce you, Dr. Payand. And I think that's enough for the introduction. This is the Keys to Understanding the Middle East podcast. So just a reminder there in case people are catching this on audio only. And um, so I'm going to let him um, just take it away. Yes, thank you, Melinda, for a pretty good introduction. Um, Afghanistan is a unique country in many ways. Uh, one of the ways is that uh, it's connecting four important regions of the world with each other. There is no other country like that in the world. Uh, it's connecting China, which is a country of the region of the East, an Eastern civilization, uh, home to the Chinese civilization. Afghanistan shares about 47 miles boundary with China. And Afghanistan shares about almost 1,500 miles boundary with Central Asian countries of Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, and Turkmenistan, which are part of the Central Asia. Then Afghanistan shares about almost 6,600 miles boundary with Iran, which is the Middle Eastern country. And Afghanistan shares about 1,600 miles boundary with Pakistan, which is a South Asian region. So Afghanistan is connecting East Asia to Central Asia, to the Middle East and South Asia. And for that reason, Afghanistan has ethnic groups 
which are across the border. Afghanistan has some people that who are like the Uyghur Turks in China, and we have in Afghanistan too. Afghanistan has more Tajiks than Tajikistan, for example. And Afghanistan has Uzbeks and shares boundary with Uzbek. Afghanistan has Turkmens because shares boundary with Turkmenistan. And Afghanistan has Persian people which shares boundary with Iran. And at the same time with Pakistan, we have common ethnic groups of Pashtuns and Baluchs. So for that this location, geographic location, and in many ways, this geography of Afghanistan, this the geopolitical location of Afghanistan has determined the history of Afghanistan. And Afghanistan is a multi-ethnic, multilingual, and in some cases, even multi-sectarian uh, country. The population of Afghanistan today is about 36 million Afghans. No one has accurate statistics because Afghanistan has been in war for the past 40 years. So these statistics that I'm sharing with you are mostly uh, estimates. Uh, the country has about the, the plural, uh, no ethnic group has a absolute majority. They don't have 50, 51% majority. Pashtuns have the largest group. They are about 40% of the people in Afghanistan estimated. The second largest group is Tajiks who are speaking Farsi. The Pashtuns are speaking the Pashto language. Then we have the third largest group in Afghanistan are Hazaras. They're racially Mongols. No one knows the history of them that when they came to Afghanistan, they're Mongols. The DNA analysis have shown, but their language is very far from the Mongolian language. So some people think that this migration took place literally thousands of years ago because in only the Mongol invasion of Afghanistan was in the 13th century, Chinggis Khan or Genghis Khan. So some people are theorizing that they came with the Chinggis Khan, but that's not true because in 800 years, the language totally does not disappear. Language have a resilience. They survive thousands of years, at least the traces of the language. So anyhow, so what happened? There are studies still being done. So Hazaras are the third largest group. Then we have Baloch and we have Sayyids and we have Hindus in Afghanistan who came from India. And we have Sikhs who are also there of a different religion. When you take Afghanistan, Afghanistan is about 99% Muslims. 99% Muslims, and 1% of them are either Sikhs or Hindus. Uh, then Afghanistan has a very small group of Christians that who came either as marriages, and they're insignificant statistically. So the, the Afghanistan, again, this name of Afghanistan is a new name for a very old piece of geography, an old piece of land. This name of Afghanistan appeared for the first time in books. Uh, a book was written in the 10th century by, by the, the name of the book was in Arabic and Persian, which is Hudud al-Alam, means the boundaries of the world. And they named this region of Afghanistan, which is Afghanistan today. Afghanistan, <clears throat> again, the word Stan, this Stan is a Persian suffix. When you add it to an ethnic group, that becomes land of that group, like Uzbekistan, land of the Uzbeks. Tajikistan, land of the Tajiks. Turkmenistan, land of the Turkmens. Afghanistan, land of the Afghans. Hindustan was the land of the Hindus. At one point, even the name of today's Saudi Arabia in the Persian books was Arabistan, means land of the Arabs. So this Stan is a Farsi suffix, 
when you add it to an ethnic group, it means the land of that group of people. So this name is a new name, but the people in Afghanistan have a very long history. The written history of Afghanistan begins with the invasion of the Persian Empire, the Khamenei Persians who came to Afghanistan around 550 BC. So these were the first invaders that who came from another empires, the Persians. The Persian Empire was in control of Afghanistan until 330 BC when Alexander the Great defeated the Persians. Then Alexander the Great occupied Afghanistan. Few people in the West will know that Alexander the Great and his armies marched through the Hindu Kush mountains and captured the whole of Afghanistan. But he did not rule Afghanistan, moved very quickly from Afghanistan to India. And in India, he was defeated the first time. Then the second time, Alexander the Great succeeded in India and he occupied India. From India, he and his armies were returning back to go to Macedonia. Or Greece today, part of that is Alexander the Great. Then he died in Iraq. So that's Alexander the Great story. After that, another empire which occupied Afghanistan was that we know in the medieval ages, the Muslim Arabs came. Now after the, the then the Sasanian Persians came to Afghanistan, they, they invaded parts of Afghanistan. Even they were under the control of the Safavids until the it's uh, 18th century. Uh, the Safavid Iran were in control of part of Western uh, Afghanistan. So after that, the Sasanian Persians were defeated by the Arab Muslims in 636 AD. The Arabs came to Afghanistan and that's where the process of Islamization started. When the Arab armies came to Iran and Turkey and Afghanistan and Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, the, the religion of Islam in Afghanistan before the advent of Islam Islam came to Afghanistan in the 8th century AD, 8th century. Before Islam, Afghans were either Zoroastrians, part of them were Zoroastrians, because Zoroaster was also one of the princes that which was probably born in today's Balkh. That was about almost 800, 900 BC. So the religion of Zoroastrianism was very common in Afghanistan among the elites. The second group of the religion, which was before the Islam, was Hinduism in Afghanistan. And some of the Afghans were shamanists, some of the Afghans were Buddhists. Then when Islam came, after that, gradually, Islam became almost the dominant religion in Afghanistan. So today in Afghanistan, as I mentioned that, 99% are Muslims. And if you divide the Muslims into two sects of the Shia and the Sunni, Afghanistan is about 85% Sunni and about 15% Shia. It is almost the opposite of Iran. Iran is about almost 85% Shia and 15% Sunnis. So Afghanistan is the reverse of opposite of that. So, and again, uh, I mentioned the population of Afghanistan. So Afghanistan has a history of, as I mentioned that, no other country of the size of Afghanistan has been invaded by big, huge empire builders. We mentioned the Persians, we mentioned the, the Greeks, then we mentioned the Arabs that who came and they were in control of the process of Islamization. Then in the, in the 13th century, Genghis Khan or Chinggis Khan, who rose from Mongolia, captured all those territories, today's Tajikistan, and they captured Afghanistan and Iran and went all the way down to up to probably the Ottoman Empire. Uh, so they had wars with them and almost Russia totally came, the whole Central Asia, and Russia came under the control of the Tatars 
in the Mongol horde. So they were uh, in, in control of Afghanistan. And after the Mongols, there were some other dynasties in Afghanistan. They sprang. Uh, there were indigenous people in Afghanistan, like the Ghaznavids. They built a huge empire which captured part of Central Asia and India. India was under the control of the Afghan Ghaznavids for about almost, and the Ghuris and the Ghaznavids. Then came Babur. Babur was a Chagatai Turk. They came from Fargana. They captured Afghanistan, the, 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 they called it the Mughals of India, the people that who built the Taj Mahal. So that they came. Then we come to now, to the 18th century. In uh, the 19th century, in 1830s, in 1830s, there were two empires competing with each other. One was the Tsarist Empire from the north of Afghanistan, which were in control of Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan. That was the Tsarist Russia. They always wanted to go to the warm waters. And there were a few routes for them. One was through Iran, another one was through Afghanistan, and another one was through Turkey. And there was the British Empire that which controlled India. And the subcontinent of India was part of the British Empire. And the British Empire was jealously protecting uh, the, 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 the Indian subcontinent. And they did not want the Tsarist Russia to make headways in Afghanistan. And that's the, that period, Melinda mentioned that, at in one point, I probably, I forgot, the great game, the term, quote-unquote, great game, that was a competition between the British Empire and the Tsarist Russia, especially fighting over Central Asia and Afghanistan. And the great game was a competition which started in 1830s. The British wanted to prevent Tsarist Russia from coming south. And the Tsarist Russia wanted to come as much south as possible to reach to the Persian Gulf in the Arabian Sea. And the British were checking them, preventing them. And that's what called the, the Great Game. The Great Game was the predecessor of the Cold War, which started after 1945. So in that Great Game, uh, the, the British Empire invaded Afghanistan from 1839. And that, that term was by Kipling, right? Yes, Rudyard Kipling. Yes. Rudyard Kipling is, um, he writes a lot of, he, he's famous for a lot of fiction work and poetry, but yes. he also wrote a lot about book. that part of the world. You're absolutely right. He wrote some yeah. children's book too. How the elephant got its trunk, for example. The zebra got its stripes. So he was a, he was a guy that who grew up in India and he was from British descent. He was a poet, he was a writer, and he has written on this, and he, he used this term, he coined this term, the great game. That these were the great game that were conspiracies and spies and even hot war with the arms. So that's what during this great game that Rudyard Kipling popularized, the British invaded Afghanistan from 1939 to 1942, 18, 1839 to 1842. And they invaded Afghanistan with about 14, 16, a thousand troops. And after 16, this was the first Anglo-Afghan war. It was a disaster for the British. Almost, they were defeated badly and only one single soldier escaped. He was, his name was Dr. Bryden, B-R-Y-D-O-N. Uh, he was a veterinarian doctor who just got and got the news of this fiasco uh, in 
1842. It was, this was the second big defeat for the British. The British were defeated by American, the 13 colonies when they rose, did the revolution, 1776. The second biggest defeat for the British came in today's Afghanistan. So that was the first Anglo war, Anglo-Afghan war. Then the British invaded again. That was a defeat, total defeat for the British. The second time they came to take the revenge in 1870s. And it was in that time they captured Afghanistan again and then again left. They could not colonize. So Afghanistan was invaded. Then, then again, there was a third Anglo-Afghan war in 1919. It was in the end of the, uh, end of the, after the end of the World War I. That was the time that the Afghans got their total independence and some sort of get, got rid of the British influence in Afghanistan uh, in 1919. So Afghanistan was invaded three times by the British, but they never colonized, never controlled it. Then fast forward, we come to another, was not an empire, but it was a state like the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan in 1979. And the Soviet Union was in Afghanistan from 1979 to 1989. They got quagmire, Afghanistan became a quagmire for the Soviet Union. And finally they left without achieving anything in Afghanistan in 1989 after losing 15,000 troops and billions of dollars and about 45,000 wounded and in the process killing about 1.2 million Afghans that the Soviet Union left. 12 years later, the United States forces went to Afghanistan after September the 11th. So Americans went to Afghanistan in 2001, October 7 of 2001. And still until this date, American troops are still in Afghanistan. They are still fighting. Uh, so that's the this history of the invasions. So especially the two superpowers of the 20th, 20th century and the 21st century, they both invaded. So this is what when Afghans are talking about that it's unique situation of Afghanistan has brought outside invaders. And again, my students always ask me that Dr. Payan, what's so important in Afghanistan that that many empire builders came? My answer to that is that first it is its geographic location, especially on the land route, the armies can march through Afghanistan to go and capture India. India was the prize for the empire builders, whether it was Alexander the Great or the Persians or the British. So India was the big, huge, rich prize that they have to. And many of the land routes used to pass through Afghanistan. And again, for the protection of the subcontinent of India, these riches of India by the British empire, which the British empire called India is the jewel on their crown. So they want to protect it. And again, for the protection of the India, Afghanistan was a buffer. So Afghanistan and Iran and Turkey, these were the three buffer states between the Tsarist Russia and the other empires such as the British and the French and later American power after World War I and World War II. So Afghanistan was involved in the great game then World War I came, World War II. After World War II, when Melinda and I were talking about this, Afghanistan's name, as I mentioned that Afghanistan is a new name, in the history books you will find Afghanistan and part of Eastern Iran, they combined 
were called, at one point, they were called Ariana, means the land of the Aryans, because they are saying that the Aryan race originated in today's Caucasus, Afghanistan, and Iran. And that's one reason why the Nazi Germany, at one point, wrongly or rightly, they thought that, well, Iranians are pure Aryans and Afghans in those mountains are pure Aryans. So that's why they are the ones that which we came from, we our origin is there. So there was a very close relationship. And one of the stories that which is always recited, that the, the late Shah of Iran, his father was Reza Khan. He came to power in Iran in 1921. And he became the king of Iran. And he was there until World War II. In World War II, when the British and the French and Americans wanted to supply Russia with arms, the Lend-Lease program against Nazi Germany to open a front from Russia, because Russia was also part of the alliance in World War II. And the father of the late Shah, this Reza Khan, would not allow this to pass through Iran. So finally, what happened? The Russian and the British forces occupied Iran, and even Americans were in that. They forced the Shah of Iran, this Reza Khan, to abdicate, to go to, he was exiled to Africa, and he died in South Africa. And his son, Muhammad Reza, was put on throne, and he was the king of kings of Iran until the revolution of the Iranian revolution of Ayatollahs in 1979. Alam, um, how similar are, I mean, how similar are Iran and Afghanistan, like in terms of their cultures? They are both called, especially the Tajiks and the Pashtuns, as I mentioned that, they're Indo-Iranian people. The Pashto language of the Pashtuns, the Farsi language of the Tajiks, they are all branches of this Indo-Iranian languages, which Indo-Iranian languages, again, is a branch of the Indo-European languages. English is one of the Indo-European languages, for example, German. And I always tell my students that this is not a coincidence that in Persian, we are using the term madar for mother. We are using the term padar for father in English. Brother. In, in Farsi, it is bradar. Daughter in English, it's dukhtar. And there are many other things which Farsi and English share because they're both branches of the Indo-European language. So again, coming to your question directly, Afghans, these Tajiks and Pashtuns and Baluchs of Afghans are called the Indo-Iranian people. They're very similar in their features as the Iranians are. Then Afghanistan has Turkumans, Iran has Turkumans which are their Turkic people, their language belongs to a different family of Turkic languages. Then also we have Kurds, who also the Kurdish language, Kurds are one of those stateless groups which are in Iran, in Syria, in Turkey, in Iraq. So these are some of the groups there. Afghanistan does not have Kurds, but Afghanistan has an ethnic group which are called Balochs. Balochs are divided into three countries. Part of them are in Iran, a section of them are in Afghanistan, a section of them are in modern-day Pakistan. So again, when it comes to the ethnic groups, Iran and Afghanistan share a lot of ethnic groups with each other. And this is one reason why uh, Persian is one of the major official languages of Afghanistan. Even though they call it Dari, D-A-R-I, the Afghan version of Farsi is called, but it's the same, written is the same as the, the Farsi literature, and many of the Persian great poets, 
were born and raised in, in Afghanistan, for example, Ansuri Balkhi was one of those. Maulana Jalaluddin Rumi is another one coming from the Balkh. Uh, Abdullah Ansari from Herat, uh, Abdurrahman Jami, for example. These are all the poets, which are Persian poets, born and raised in today's modern Afghanistan. So these are the commonalities. Language is the one thing, ethnicity is another one, and also the race when you go to the Aryan. So these are the, the common features. But they have some other groups that which, uh, as I mentioned that, the Kurds are one of those groups that which, which there is about almost 10% of Iran probably could be Kurdish. The Kurdish language is a Persian-based language. Afghanistan does not have uh, Kurds. Uh, as uh, as um, some of them may have come at one point, they, they take their genealogy that well our ancestors came from there from Kurds in Afghanistan, but we don't have a community uh, specifically that which will be called as the Kurds of Afghanistan. So did I answer your question, Melinda? That the, 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 oh yeah, very helpful. Thank you so much. Um, I guess I'm curious because you brought up Kurds. Um, Iranian cultures and related cultures like the Kurds. Do you celebrate the uh, the new year? Yes, the it's no rules. Astrological again, again. new year of the equinox. Yeah, and I was wondering, is that ever celebrated in Afghanistan? Yes, it's a very big deal. Uh, no rules. As a matter of fact, they call it the Zoroastrian. Remember, we talked about the Zoroaster was born in today's Balkh, and that's what it was, the center of the... And he died, as a matter of fact, in, in, in today's Balkh, which is in Afghanistan. Uh, this was the capital of Bactria. And at one point, part of Afghanistan was this, this Bactrian civilization. The term the Bactrian um, camels come from. So this was Bactria. Uh, and Balkh was the capital of that region at the time, before Persians came, before the Alexander the Great came. So this, uh, the religion of Zoroastrianism, uh, which spread from Afghanistan, and then at one point, Buddhism, originated in India, but somehow found in Afghanistan, in Afghanistan, Bamiyan. Bamiyan became the center of Buddhist monasteries and Buddhism from Afghanistan radiated, just like Iqbal said that what happens in Afghanistan, it radiates to other places. Buddhism is one of those originated in, Af in, in India. They were persecuted, came to Afghanistan, found a home in Afghanistan. And from Afghanistan, Buddhism spread to other, even from China and Japan, the seminaries, the students will come and be taught Buddhism in Bamiyan. Then yeah, you mentioned, you mentioned Iqbal's poem. Um, let's go ahead and share yeah, that. Um, if, if, if anyone knows Persian, I will recite it, his couplets in Farsi, uh, which is Asya yak paikare abu gilast, millete afghan daran paikar dilast, as fisadi o fisadi asya, dar gushadi o gushadi asya. Iqbal was one of the guys, he was a philosopher, he was a poet, he got his PhD degree from Heidelberg University, and he was a lawyer, a barrister, so to speak, and he was one of the greatest Persian poets. Uh, he's he's the, the greatest Muslim thinker of the 20th century, he's been named. So he studied Afghanistan and study of the Afghanistan and he studied the ethnography in different groups in Afghanistan. In, in his poem, he mentioned that Asia is, is, is a land, is a piece of land, Asia, 
and uh, he called it Asia in Asia, Asia in, in, in Farsi, it's Asia, it's Asia. Asia is a, a, a piece of geography. Afghanistan is the heart of this piece of geography. He did not say that Afghanistan is important. He said that what happens in Afghanistan, it does not stay in Afghanistan. It radiates to other, because Afghanistan is a country which connects East to the North, to the Central Asia, to the Middle East. And Afghanistan has the ethnic groups of all people when Afghanistan is, is aching and hurting, and this ache does not stay in Afghanistan, it radiates to the Baloch and Pashtun in Pakistan, today's subcontinent of India. It goes across the Oxus River, Uzbek, Tajik, Turkmans, and Central Asia, and to Iran, which shares about almost 650 miles boundary. It does not stay. So the problem, we saw that very much when the Soviet Union of, uh, invaded Afghanistan in 1979. So this struggle of the Afghans did not stay in Afghanistan. Al-Qaeda was a byproduct of the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. All these terrorist groups, Taliban and others that we are talking about, it's all the consequences of what the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan. Then another example, when the United States went to forces to Afghanistan and to Iraq, it gave birth to Al-Qaeda in, in, in Mesopotamia. The ISIS, for example, ISIS is also one of the things that which got the oxygen after the American invasion of Iraq. So that's what Iqbal is talking about. If, if, if a foreign country comes and invades Afghanistan, this problem does not stay only in Afghanistan. It radiates and it goes to other. So that's what Iqbal wrote about Afghanistan, that uh, it's, it's a multi-ethnic, multi-racial um, country. Uh, it, it, it goes, to, if one ethnic group is pressured in Afghanistan, other ethnic groups, probably the co-religionists or co-sectarian groups, like the Shia, the Sunni dynamics, for example. Uh, this is one reason why Iranian is so much influential among the Hazaras in Afghanistan who are Shiites and the Kizilbash and others. And Pakistan is so influential among the Sunni groups. It's just like when we go to Yemen, for example, today, it's the Sunni-Shia divide of the same Yemenis. They're the same people. But they divided on these two sects of the Yadi Shiites, the Hutsis, and the other Sunni groups, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, Qatar, they are supporting this Sunni groups of the Yemen. In Iran, on the other hand, which is a Shia, the 12 are Shia, they are supporting the Yadis. And that's Yemen is a very good example too. So the, this problem of Yemen does are not these, stay. Are these divisions getting worse because of uh, foreign invasions? Like when you talk about the diversity of Afghanistan uh, yes. and then people getting pulled toward the neighbors that they're a little bit more similar with, and then it kind of pulls the, it seems to kind of pull the country apart. Yeah, Iqbal was one of the poets and he knew that how the British empire came to India and the British Empire's policies were divide and conquer. They would pit the Sunnis against the Shiites, Shiites against the Sunnis, Hindus against the Muslims, Muslims against the Hindus, Sikhs against. So what happened to divide the country and then rule that country? So that's what Iqbal is talking about. If the outside invaders are accentuating these things. When the Soviet Union came to Afghanistan, they did not found, they didn't find many supporters. That they will go after the minority groups who are suppressed. When the British went to uh, Egypt in 1882, they co-opted some of the Coptic Christians 
There are about 10, 11% of the Egypt. So what happened? This Christians group was Catholic. So what happened? This co-religionists, invaders, will look at the who, and then many of the collaborators, whether, when you look at the history of the humanity, uh, that those people collaborated with the invading armies that which they share the same religion or ethnicity. So these outside invaders. Dr. Fayez, can we um, maybe um, show the audience um, the actual physical landscape um, in terms of like, you know, Iran being a Shi force on one side of Afghanistan? Maybe if I pull up the map. If you pull up the map, I will describe it. Yes, it will be helpful. Thank you. No problem. So let's do that. Can you see it? Oh, I do not see the map. Oh, darn. Um, I wonder why it's showing that. That's weird. Maybe, oh, I'll get rid of this. Okay, let me try again. <laughs> Sorry. Um, Okay, I'm gonna stop sharing and then we try that again. I seem to only be able to share my whole screen to like, it only works if I share the entire screen. So I'll just do that and go to the map really quick here. Now, can you see it? Uh, yes, I see Afghanistan right now. Oh, I good. don't know whether my arrow works or not there. Um, I think mine does. So, okay. uh, I can, so yeah. Just go to the tip of the, uh, pen handle handle which is in China. This this narrow strip of Afghanistan. Can, Can you see, see that? that? Yeah. Can you see my arrow? Yeah. yeah, that's a 47 miles boundary with China that Afghanistan shares. Then again, from here to here, it's Tajikistan. If you see it on the map, sharing this boundary with Tajikistan in a very zigzag. There is Oxus River, originates from this height. Well, Afghanistan is a country the size of Texas, but very tall mountain. The world's tallest mountains, many of them are in Afghanistan. And those snow melts and makes this big, huge river. And it forms the boundary between Afghanistan and Tajikistan. Then here comes Uzbekistan. Then that's the boundary between Afghanistan and Uzbekistan. Then comes there this Turkmenistan, the boundary between Turkmenistan and Afghanistan. Then here is Iran. Then the boundary with Iran. And then here is this Pakistan. So from, let's take from this point, Afghanistan shares boundary with Pakistan uh, up to here. So this is the 1600 miles boundary. In this side of Afghanistan, there are Pashtuns living in this area. And in Pakistan, there are Pashtuns here. In Afghanistan, there are Balochs here. And there are in Pakistan, Balochs there. In Afghanistan, there are Balochs here. In Iran, there are Balochs there. So this is now the same ethnic groups on both sides of the border with Iran. The same ethnic groups with both sides of the border with Turkmenistan. The same. So this is what Iqbal mentioned that that no other country has this kind of geographic locations and ethnic groups mix up uh, an amalgam, a sort of mosaic of different ethnic groups. Uh, when one ethnic group is suffering, that their co-religionists and co-ethnic groups are supporting that. So it accentuates. There are always these 
minority majority situation in any country but when the foreign invader is supporting one against another one that creates a kind of civil war in any one of these countries so just to review so iran is shi majority and pakistan is sunni majority correct yes yes afghanistan is a sunni majority too uh, and then afghanistan is as well yeah uh, and uh, tajikistan is a sunni majority uzbekistan is a sunni majority this Uyghurs we are living here in in China. This is the they are also Turks. They are also Sunni majority, which now uh, China has built concentration camps for them. They are the same ethnic Turkic groups speaking Turkic languages and Muslims. They are Sunni Muslims. So yeah, I'll uh, just show China really quick. Yeah. Um, Here's China, and then if you look, you can see this little border here with Afghanistan. Yeah, it's 47 miles. It's a very tiny border, and again. These boundaries were drawn by the British at the time, uh, somehow in some sort of conferences. This boundary was totally drawn in this area. This area belonged to Afghanistan by the name of Panjdeh. And the Russians took it in 1895 from Afghanistan. They promised to give it back, Lenin, but they did not. This was part of Afghanistan. This part is Pashtunistan. This area of Northwest Frontier and Balochistan were part of Afghanistan. And the British India annexed that uh, in uh, 1880s, so to speak. So Afghanistan is a very tiny country now because chunk of that is taken by Russia, chunk of that is taken by Pakistan. Mm. So it is now a much smaller, it does not, it's a landlocked country now. Mm -hmm. it, used to, it used to have access to the Arabian Sea. Because this part was Afghanistan's part at one Which point. the Arabian Sea is here where Karachi is, right? Yes, which Karachi is, yeah. And so Afghanistan, Afghanistan had an outlet to the oceans before the Durand line. So this line of Afghanistan from here to here were drawn by one of the British surveyors during the British Empire. Uh, so this is a very artificial boundary according to the Afghans and the Northwest Frontier people. And Afghanistan still claims that this area was by, by force, by duress, included by the British India, and British have left India in 1947. Afghanistan claimed, reclaimed the area, but they never succeeded. This is a big, huge point of dispute between today's Pakistan and Afghanistan, these areas which once belonged to Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and that that gets forgotten in the news because there's always so much news about other things related to Afghanistan. So, and there are this hot news coming, and the old news becomes somehow superseded by some ways. Uh, by the way, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan for Afghans is one of the worst in the history of the whole history of Afghanistan because they came and killed about 1.2 million Afghans. Seven million Afghans became external refugees. Four million of them became internally displaced and one million crippled. So Afghanistan's population was about 19 million when the Soviet Union invaded. After 19 or 18 million Afghans, 1.1 million, 1.1 or 1.2 killed, six million refugees, one million crippled. So and four million inter internally displaced. In other words, one or two Afghan is either killed or wounded. This was one of the fiasco for Afghanistan, which Afghanistan never recovered from that. 
Then on top of that, September the 11th happened. And September the 11th story is a different story. Afghanistan was under the, when the Soviets left Afghanistan, went to a civil war. And finally, in 1996, the Taliban came and captured Afghanistan. It was during the Taliban regime in Afghanistan, which Al-Qaeda camps were built in Afghanistan. And September the 11th happened when Osama bin Laden was in Afghanistan. And those four planes which were hijacked, uh, twin, two of them hit the Twin Towers in the United States, another one hit the Pentagon. The fourth one crashed in Pennsylvania. 3,000 Americans were killed, and Americans quickly asked the Taliban to surrender those Al-Qaeda terrorists to the United Nations, and the Taliban could not do that because they were not strong enough. So finally, what happened? The United States invaded Afghanistan, went to Afghanistan on October the 7th, 2001. And from October the 7th, 2001, until this date, Americans are in Afghanistan. At one point, the United States had 100 American soldiers in Afghanistan and about 50,000 NATO forces in Afghanistan. They did not pacify totally, did not eradicate. They, they removed the Taliban from power in Afghanistan, but did not defeat them. Taliban, when the United States from Afghanistan in 2003, under the Bush administration, the United States went and invaded Iraq in summer of 2003. They removed their assets from Afghanistan to Iraq, as if Afghanistan is now okay or getting better. This was prematurely they left Afghanistan, went to Iraq. In Iraq, Americans have lost about 5,000 troops dead and about 30,000 wounded trillions of dollars spent and Afghanistan was abandoned for neglected and that's what the Taliban regrouped came again in their fighting still they're fighting and Americans have not pacified Taliban in the past Americans and Afghan governments combined failed totally to eradicate Taliban and Taliban are now gaining power every day under the Trump administration they wanted to totally get out of Afghanistan and find some, find some kind of solution between the Taliban and the Afghan government. And it's, the talks are still going on in Qatar, Qatar's capital, Doha, between Americans and Taliban. But Talibans are counting on time. They're using the proverb that, well, if Americans have time, if Americans have watches, we have time. It means that well, time is on our side, just like the Russia, the Soviet Union, the British came to Afghanistan, left back, the Soviet Union came to Afghanistan, left Afghanistan. Americans will do the same thing. So they are counting on Americans getting tired in Afghanistan and they will regroup and come and capture. That, that's what their desire is in Afghanistan, Taliban. But inside Afghanistan, people are not happy with what's happening right now in Afghanistan. They do not like the Taliban. And at the same time, the Afghan people do not like their corrupt current government either. So the current government is very predatory in Afghanistan. And at the same time, the Taliban are just very destructive. They're killing newsmen, they're killing journalists, they're killing professors of universities. They're, this suicidal bombing is exploding each day in capital city and many other places. So the people of Afghanistan are just crushed between Taliban on the one side and American and NATO forces on the other side and their own corrupt government, which did not improve did not reduce the corruption, did not 
uh, improve the situation inside Afghanistan. So it's almost everyone is failing in Afghanistan, including yeah. Americans. Does anyone have any questions? We've only got a couple people here, but now's your chance. I'm I'm just watching the comments in Facebook, so. Okay, well, I'll keep watching. And in the meantime, um, I just want to share what's going on at Ohio State with regard to Afghanistan. There's a lot going on here and great resources. So um, if you're a student at Ohio State, you can obviously learn from Dr. Payan and his classes about Afghanistan. Um, you can uh, learn, we also have uh, Scott Levi, who's an expert on Afghanistan. And we have a lot of expertise on the Middle East and Central Asia and Afghanistan's in the center there. Um, so, you know, definitely check out our course list on the Middle East Study Center's website. Um, and we actually, Ohio State teaches the languages of Afghanistan. Um, so we teach, um, we teach Persian, of course. Um, that's a long-standing program here at Ohio State. We're very fortunate to have. Um, we also have a strong Uzbek program. And um, we offer um, occasionally, like when, when there's demand, we offer Pashto. Uh, we offer um, Urdu, which is in neighboring Pakistan, not in Afghanistan, but is, um, you know, a close neighbor there. Um, what else? What other languages of Afghanistan? Am I missing anything? Yeah, there are Baluchi's language there, which is, uh, as I mentioned, that one of the minority. Well, by the way, Many of the Afghans, because about five million of them became refugees in, in, in Pakistan, they learned Urdu, their children learned Urdu, and they have come back now almost uh, a good segment of the Afghans know Urdu too, uh, they, can, they can speak that language. So it is it, it has become more common than it used to be before the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. And by the way, there is another factor. When this five, six million Afghans went to Pakistan, the high birth rate among the refugee camps in Pakistan, these kids were all sent to the madrasas in Pakistan. These madrasas were the religious seminaries, kind of Islamic Muslim seminaries. And they were indoctrinated by these very radical mullahs. And mostly the Saudi Arabian money financed those madrasas. Madrasa is the Arabic word for a place for it's mostly it's used for the religious Muslim Islamic schools, not the modern Islamic schools. So those kids who were born in, during the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan 40 years ago, now there are each one of them are there in 30s and 40s. So they are the ones that which are swelling the 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 the, the, the rank and file of the Taliban. So and then of the Pakistani Taliban too joining this. So it's a big, huge group of these madrasas were very detrimental uh, to the independence of Afghanistan, and there are many of them are radicalized. And, I mean, Osama bin Laden himself is a Saudi with Yemeni heritage. Yes. So, yeah. Interesting. He, that, yeah, he he was a uh, and he he what happened? Osama bin Laden, his father's name was uh, Muhammad bin Laden, and he was the owner of a big, huge construction company in the Middle East. Yeah, multi-billion business, and his father had from four wives. I do not know about 13, 14 sons and daughters, 
And Osama bin Laden was one of those. He inherited a tremendous amount of money from his father when he died, Muhammad bin Laden. And he took part of that money in building caves in Afghanistan. If you remember that, we talked about those. Yeah, yeah. When the Soviet Union, so what happened? The Soviet invasion of Afghanistan directly contributed to that kind of groups to spring, like Al-Qaeda was one of them. One of the, the, the groups which, which was formed after the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. When the Soviet left Afghanistan in 1989, Americans forgot about Afghanistan, which were supporting the resistance before. So mm -hmm. Osama then went back to Saudi Arabia, and then finally he was very active in Sudan. Then again came to Afghanistan uh, when, 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 when the Taliban came. Uh, so when Taliban came, Osama bin Laden came, and Osama, some people even say that, well, Osama bin Laden's sister was married to Mullah Omara. That sort of marriages took place between the Taliban and, and Al-Qaeda groups. Uh, so Osama bin Laden is one of those. Yes, you're absolutely right. Uh, and about almost uh, thousands of Arab students from United Arab Emirates, Sudan, Algeria, many other countries came and fought on the sides of Afghans against the Soviet Union. When the Soviet Union left, these guys, they call it the Arab Mujahideen of Afghanistan. They were Arabs, like Osama bin Laden. They created problems in their own countries. When they went back, they said, well, look, we succeeded in Afghanistan to defeat a superpower, the Soviet Union. So let's do the same kind of thing in Saudi Arabia. And this is one reason, one of the first attack of, this, the, of the Al Qaeda was in the Hubar Tower of Saudi Arabia. It was in Riyadh, I believe. So that the, the, the Osama bin Laden's attacks after Afghanistan, this was before September the 11th. If you remember, there was another bomb that which exploded in one of the twin towers in the basement of that. It was 1994, I believe. Uh, it was one of the Al-Qaeda groups, which was a rider truck was rented and it exploded in one of the twin towers basements. That was, at that time, Al-Qaeda became a group that people thought that it's a terrorist group. This was before, uh, they did the September the 11th. So there, Al-Qaeda was involved uh, in, in many things in, in their first attack. And then they exploded a bomb in one of the Pakrachi hotels too. So this Al-Qaeda started uh, learning, exploding and bombing and things like that, fighting against the Soviet Union troops. And then, then later used it uh, on their own Muslim countrymen in other parts of the, of the Middle East and South Asia. So coming back to, to, me, to, to summarize the whole thing, that foreign invasions rarely solves the problems of the countries when you take armies and go in, like the British came to Egypt, for example, or the French went to Algeria. Yeah, they colonized those, uh, but they created a lot of problems. The, one of the problems that British left between India and Pakistan is the Kashmir problem. And one of the problems that India, uh, the British India, the British left between Afghanistan and today's Pakistan is this Northwest frontier, which the British took it and then later they led it Pakistan. So that in another problem that the foreign empires, the, the Cyprus situation between the, the Greece uh, in, 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 in Turkey. So this foreign drawing boundaries and this manipulation, finally, the, the, another is the creation of the state of Lebanon. It was a foreign creation by the French. 
after World War One, when they went, Syria became the French mandate, and France wanted to create four countries of Syria, but they succeeded to create one country, Lebanon, as a to give the majority to the Christian. That's a newly developed. Jordan is another country. It's a, the British drew the boundaries of Jordan. The British drew the boundaries between uh, Kuwait and Iraq and Saudi Arabia. The British drew the boundary between Afghanistan and Pakistan. And again, there was those other artificial boundaries between uh, Northern Azerbaijan. And, and they, they were doing that um, in the name of helping. Like they, they did see it as, like you mentioned, I thought it was interesting you mentioned problem solving um, because that is what they kind of, um, I don't know what they actually thought, but that's what they said that they were doing, that they were making things better by doing those things. Yeah, if you do not know the dynamics on the ground with a good intention sometimes, well, the the road to hell was paved with good intention sometimes. If you, uh, in Afghanistan, I have seen some of my colleagues in other universities who do not know much about Afghanistan. Well, Afghanistan should be divided now between the Uzbek and um, Tajik and this and that, northern Afghanistan. Let's 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 draw a boundary in the middle of Afghanistan. The North Hindu Kush will be one of then they, that would solve the problem. But no, it's not going to solve the problem because these race, these ethnic groups are on both sides of the Hindu Kush mountains, on both sides of the Oxus River. So that's not going to solve the problem if you now chop Afghanistan into two or three other countries. We have seen that it's uh, it didn't work. These foreign boundaries. Are artificial. On the one side of the border is the village, on the other side of the border is the grazing land, on the one side of the border is the well and water, and the other side is not that. So that's what that the British did. They did drew those lines by ruler and paper in a cold shade, but they did not solve those problems, still exist. So these foreign drawn, totally artificial boundaries even with the good intentions, uh, sometimes it created more problems than it solved the problems. Yeah, and we've got five more minutes. So I just want to um, take some time to share more about Afghanistan uh, research and um, outreach at Ohio State. So a um, couple of years ago, we worked with the theater department to actually commission plays about Afghanistan. So two were performed here um, at the Wexner Center for the Arts um, at Ohio State University. And um, we are, because of the pandemic, we've been slowed down a little bit, but we're working on a documentary about those plays and the process of commissioning them. And they were written by Afghan women. Um, so it's uh, really cool, really cool opportunity to learn about Afghanistan and kind of how people experience it there. And then we also have an amazing library at Ohio State and an amazing um, librarian who oversees our Middle East and Islamic Studies collection. And, um, and her name's Magda El Sherbini, and she actually put together a resource for, for researchers or just even just novices. Um, and I'm gonna show it to you here. Let's. See if I can figure that out. Share screen, entire screen, allow. Okay, so here it is. So it's called Performing Afghanistan um, because she set it up at the time we um, 
we actually commissioned those plays and the project was called Performing Afghanistan. So there's a little bit about the project here and you can see there's a map and here's the flag of Afghanistan. Um, this Is this Kabul, Dr. Payan? Yes. Uh, can, you bring, can you bring the flag back? And I will oh say yeah, sure. Here. Here's the yes, flag. Black, red, and green. Black mentions that this is the period of ignorance, fighting, darkness. Then the red is that, that the Afghans have spilled their blood to keep Afghanistan independent. The green is somehow, it is like the green in lush areas. Some people say that's an Islamic color, the green. And another one is that it's a peaceful time, like spring, for example. So it means it's a peaceful period. So it is darkness when Afghanistan was under the control of the dark groups, either cruel domestic leaders or foreign invasions. Then Afghans fought for it and spilled their blood. And that's the red color of the blood. It's not like the Soviet Union's red flag or the China's red flag. Then again, that's the green. So that that is a symbol. And this, the, on the other hand, that which is in the middle, that's that's a kind of mihrab, which is the 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 niche uh, for prayer, uh, which is which, which reflects the Islamic nature of the Afghanistan, which 99% of the Afghans are Muslims. So it is the prayer place that where Imam comes and gives some sort of sermon. Uh, so it really there is some meaning in the in the flag of Afghanistan. Excellent. Thank you so much for that explanation. Um, I'm going to stop sharing here so I can. And um, uh, the other thing I thought I would just uh, mention in regard to learning about Afghanistan is that um, Malana Jalaluddin Arumi was born in Afghanistan. Um, he grew up in Turkey, but he was born in Afghanistan. So he's truly kind of a pan Middle Eastern uh, figure and famous uh, poet and philosopher. And you'll see him quoted. I see him quoted all the time and he's usually just quoted as Rumi. So check him out. Um, and yeah, was born in Afghanistan. So little known fact for a lot of people about his connection. He was born in Balkh, just like Zoroaster was. So uh, a lot, yeah. of, lot of famous people. Yeah, but the famous people always, other people think that they're theirs too. Because his, he was 12, 13 years old when his father, who was a scholar by the name of uh, Bawudin Walad. So they, this was again, the Mongol invasion and these other invasions of Afghanistan by so many other times, they left Balkh and moved to Nishapur, Iran, and from there they went to Kunya in today's Turkey. Melinda and I went and saw yes. where his grave is. So you need to go. If you get a chance, definitely go. It's worth it. Yeah. He settled there and then he was a, he was a theologian. Uh, he was a poet. He was a mufti that who gives sort of fatwas about, he, he was a scholar of Islam. And at the same time, he studied the Greek philosophy and the Roman uh, orators and others. So he was a, 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 one of the greatest poets. Uh, Turks claim him because he died there, his place. So that, that's fine. Iranians say that, well, he was a Persian poet. So Iran is the, that sort of thing. So Afghans say that, no, he was born and raised here. He left as a 12-year-old guy. And still, he wrote his, his Persian is a very much Balkh Persian. 
it is not the Iranian Persian, so it is in Balkhi accent. Uh, he, he, his whole poetry, when you read it, you find that you very little see the, the, the Iranian version of Persian. It is it's very much the Balkhi uh, uh, intonations in, in his poetry. And I used to be, when I was a young man, a reciter of his, um, his Masnavi, his, his monumental work. Um. Okay, well, we've, we've been here for an hour, so um, we're gonna wrap it up. Um, uh, I think we'll stay another five minutes just to see if there's any questions though. So feel free to um, just type your questions in the comments and I'll be looking for them. Thanks so much for joining us today. Well, thank you, Melinda. Thanks a lot for facilitating this. And, um... You're welcome. You're welcome. I'm learning a lot and- um, I'm learning I like, too. I like it, yeah. Yeah, I, I really like taking some time out every other Wednesday to just focus on a topic and learn from somebody and you know, kind of really think about Ohio State in terms of our intellectual communities. So it's really fun. And again, I have to mention that Maulana Jalaluddin Rumi's works, his quotations, well, his Masnavi is about almost 70,000 couplets. Uh, it's probably one of the most sold and translated in literally hundreds of languages. So his work, uh, it, it's, uh, it's not only in English or German or French or Russian, even in languages such as Bengali, for example, even in languages such as Kurdish, even in mm. Kurdish, is wow. a piece, but yeah, his work and his quotes are translated into in different languages. And he was a humanist. In his poetry, uh, he was a mystic at the same time. For him, these the rituals of the religions did not mean much. He was he was looking at the core of the religions, Judaism, especially the three Abrahamic monotheistic religions of Judaism, Christianity. And he was well versed. He knew about Torah. He studied that, and he studied the Gospels, and he studied the New Testament. And at the same time, in his poetry, you will see that. And he knew very much about Islam too. And he looked at all these, and his, he, the core of all these religions, he found one fact, that which was the human, common humanity and, and, and the commonality between these three languages. So that's one reason why he has that many followers. They say that when in the 21st century, we need more Maulana Jalaluddin Rumi's. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's, he's really current, you know, even though he passed away. I think 600 years ago or so, but he's very current right now. Yeah, he was. He 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 was a he was before Hafiz Shirazi. I think he was. Um, he died in the 13th century. It's a 12 something. Uh, yeah, we're talking. Oh, wow. about, so uh, more like closer to yeah. 800 years. 800 years, yeah. Oh, wow, it's amazing. Yeah, and his. Um, the mausoleum for him is also his, what was his monastery and school where he taught uh, adherence to his philosophy. So it's very his, impressive. His disciples, yeah. yeah. So after, after him, there is a Sufi, um, they call it Tariqa. 
at the Sufi tradition, they call it Mawlawiyyah. They're just like Qadiriyah and Naqshbandiyah, um, this and that. So they call it Mawlawiyyah. These are the people sometimes you see that in the movies or pictures, the whirling dervishes. So oh, right, yeah. yeah. So they are the ones that who are reciting uh, the name of God, praising the God. Same God, God of Jews, God of Christians, God of Muslims. Any, 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 any religion, when they say there is one uh, truth, one God, uh, they decide that. And you that. see dervishes all across the Middle East, from Egypt to Iran to, uh, I guess, Afghanistan too, right? Yeah, Afghanistan has, Afghanistan and Central Asia and Turkey. And also the North Africa, the Sufi yeah. traditions of, of different branches. Egypt they definitely has whirling dervishes. Yeah. yeah. They have whirling dervishes, and there are others that are not whirling dervishes. They somehow also use instrument. There are few Muslim Sufi groups, mystic groups that they are using. They, they do the praising God, praising the messengers of God, praising the books of God. And then at the same time, they accompany with music. Mm. One of the groups which did this accompanying with the there were the Chustia Tariqa in India, which until this date there is a genre that people sing with the instruments and music. Some people say that's the influence of the Hindu religion too, because it developed in India, the subcontinent of India. And Interesting. Hindus, yeah, Hindus have in their classic, even <coughs> they call it maqams, and this they call it bhajan in Hindi. Uh, which is the devotional songs, devotional music tunes, that which is praying to God, whatever God or goddesses, uh, depending on polytheism and monotheism, so that they, they 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 recite parts of the praising of the God with the with the music, and some of them think that music is distracting; they're taking you from the real verses of the Quran. Or so some some mystics do not accept playing music musical instruments um, but but the sufis of the turkey and india they do hmm. some controversy there to delve into at another at another time well we're going to wrap it up now so uh, thanks everyone uh, really enjoyed having an audience and um, tell your friends let's grow it let's you know keep sharing the the good word and um, you can also feel free to just reach out to us at the Middle East Studies Center um, and let us know, you know, what your thoughts are, or if there's some other topic you'd like to hear about, or you have questions about Ohio State. So, all right, everyone, I'm going to end the end the broadcast. And uh, Dr. Pan, you and I can stay in the room if you'd like. And we can talk. Yeah, all right. We will talk about. Uh, See some ya. Other yeah.